everyone. Um, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. As you turn there, I want to point out something. And that is, well, let's, let's, do, let's do a quick little history lesson. Uh, 563 B.C., a man is born to a very, very wealthy family. He grows up in this, he has everything handed to him, and he decides this is not the way to live life. In fact, every desire of the human heart just brings suffering, and so he invents a religion that tries to remove that. We know him as the Buddha, he created Buddhism, and in 483, he died. He was cremated, his ashes were given to his followers, they were spread. He died, and he's dead, and he's still dead. Fast forward, 571, Muhammad is born, and he creates a religion that is founded on violence, founded on submission to Allah, and he writes a book, and he says, look, anybody who disagrees with them, meet them with the sword. He also dies. He's still dead. He's in his grave. That's where he lies today. You jump forward again. 1805, and Joseph Smith is born, and he creates a religion around how he used to be a con man. You know, look in the hat, see your stone, and tell people where they could find gold. He's convicted of this as a con man, and then, ironically enough, he creates the Book of Mormon in the same way. He looks inside of a hat, and he says, this is what God has told me to write down. And a mere 40 years later, he dies, and he is dead. He's in his tomb. He has not come back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a story that is far better than that. We have a story that is true, and we have a Savior that is not dead. He did die, but he has come back. He is resurrected. Amen. Hallelujah. That's right. We serve a God, we serve the ruler of the universe who created everything, who stepped down into his creation as a man. He lived a life of perfection. He allowed himself to be killed. And he goes to the grave, he sets the captives free, and three days later he bursts forth from the tomb, and he is alive. You see, all of these other men, all these other religious leaders, they died and they stayed dead. But Jesus has risen from the grave. The tomb is empty. And there are many people who say, all religions are the same. We have a hope that no other worldview has. Our religious leader is the God of the universe and he is no longer dead. He has risen from the grave, what a glorious day it is to be in the house of the Lord. We celebrate this every week, right? Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But today, in particular, especially, we remember and we, we, we celebrate the life of Christ, the resurrection, because the tomb is empty. Our Savior is seated on his throne next to the Father forever and ever. And so, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to look at what does that mean for us? How do we know that can be true? What do we do in light of that? How do we respond? All of these questions. That is the truth. That is the foundation of what we believe. But there are implications for it, right? And so we look to 1 Corinthians 15. 
starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's look at that first. So the first thing to notice is that Paul tells us this is a first importance. This is where we stand. This is the most important thing in our understanding of Christianity. Now, as with every church, everywhere, there are going to be things that we disagree on. We all read the Bible, and I think we should all recognize this. We all read the Bible, and we come to it with a preconceived notion. Maybe we've learned something in Sunday school, or we learned something from our parents. And many times, those things are correct, but sometimes they're not, right? And it shades the way that we read the Bible, and it's very possible, in fact, probably for everyone in this room, we hold, a, including myself, we hold a theological idea that we are sure is true, but it's probably not, right? We just, it's, the Bible can be cryptic and confusing, and we read it, and we do our best, and we're trying all of the time to understand it, but there will be disagreements. There will be things that we believe that other people don't, and many of those things should not divide us. As a church, you, like, you, you might believe that it's the right thing to do is to baptize babies. Some won't believe that. You might believe wholeheartedly there is a rapture coming. Some people don't believe that, right? You might believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active. Some people don't. That's okay. We can stand beside one another. We can worship together. We can serve God together. Those things should not divide us. But they're also not vain pursuits. We don't just say, ah, we just got the gospel. That's all I care about. I don't care about any. God wrote this thing. He revealed it to us so that we can try and understand it. We want to give every effort to understand the most complicated. We don't avoid the book of Revelation and Ezekiel. I don't know. End times, don't care, not going to think about it. It's hard, right? There's a lot of these ideas and we don't know what's the right one. But we should pursue it. We should be wanting to figure this out. But it should never divide us. In our small group, we've had some wonderful discussions about theology, about the doctrine of salvation, about the end times. And we disagree, and that's okay, and we're still together, and we still love the same God and worship the same God. But there is one thing that we will not negotiate, and that is what Paul just told us. This is where the church stands, and there is absolutely no way that we will ever come off of this. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you deny any part of that, you are not worshiping the same God that we are worshiping here. Right? There is a time when we say we will no longer negotiate. There is no compromise. This is what we believe. Unapologetically, we deny any other and all other religions and worldviews that deny that. Our neighbors deny this truth, and we deny them as Christians, right? They want to shout it all the time. Whoa, we're Mormons and we're Christians. No, you're not. You don't believe in this. You, di- you, don't, you compromise on this statement that we have just read, right? This is where the line is drawn. We will not compromise. This is the foundation of the church, and Christ is the cornerstone. We have to believe this. To deny any part of that statement is to deny Christianity as a whole. And we cannot do that. 
Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. You don't want to fully embrace the five points of Calvinism? That's okay. We're friends. We worship together. I love you as a brother. But if you want to try and deny this, I can't worship in the same... It's the reason why there's a fence between us and them. Right? Because we are different. Very, very different. We will not compromise on this. So let's look at the first thing he says. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So what does Paul mean when he says in accordance with the scriptures? He's talking about the New Testament. Now we know that Paul considered the writings of Peter and the gospel writers as scripture. But I think he's pointing us to the Old Testament, right? We have more than just the gospels that lay out for us the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at Isaiah 53. Both of your banners have it listed, right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. I have known many Jewish people who do not have a clue what to do with this. They just skip it. I, they don't believe in Jesus. They read Isaiah like, I don't know. Like, we're, let's just let's flip past that, right? Isaiah 52, that's okay. Isaiah 54, that's okay. But let's look at Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. 
700 years. That's how many years before the death of Jesus this was written. Christ died according to the scriptures. Flip over to Isaiah 31, just a few pages to your right. The new covenant, Isaiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Last one, look at Psalm 22. Quick little history lesson for you. I'm sure this past week you've read within your family or at church or somewhere. You've seen and read and been reminded of what Jesus says on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Old Testament scrolls didn't have numbers, right? There was no chapter number. If Jesus wanted people to go and look in a certain place, he would tell them the first line. You see, Jesus on the cross is not saying that the Father has forsaken them. He's saying, go and read Psalm 22. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like the pot shared, my tongue, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, who on else, who on earth is this talking about other than Jesus Christ? Paul says he died according to the scriptures. Pierced hands and pierced feet. This crucifixion didn't exist for like another 500 years. 
This is a prophecy that Christ is coming and that he's going to be killed. When Paul tells us that Christ died according to the scriptures, this is what he's talking about. My question to you this morning is, do you believe it? Have you put your faith in the sacrifice that Christ gave on the cross and the fact that he was resurrected, that he defeated death and he defeated sin by this one act? Have you bowed your knee over the lamb who was led to the slaughter to save you from your sins? Christ was also buried and resurrected according to the scriptures. We saw it in Isaiah 53 where he says, He shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is after the language of death. The prophecy that Christ will die and yet his days will be prolonged. God tells us, yes, he's going to crush him, but he's going to raise him back up. Look at Psalm 16 with me, verse 10. This is a really, really interesting verse that David writes, Psalm 16, 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now the first half, David is talking about himself. But David never, ever, ever refers to himself as the Holy One. That word, that Hebrew word, is reserved for the Son of Man. It's reserved for the Son of God in the Old Testament. David tells us, the Son of God, the Holy One, will not see corruption. Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. Now the question, why does Paul mention all of these folks? Why does he mention Cephas? Why does he mention the apostles, all the 500 people who saw Jesus in his resurrected body? Why? Well, let me start by asking you a different question. How many of you have met people who are not Christians who say to you, I would believe it if you could just prove it to me? can't prove historical events in those terms, right? We understand there is a way to prove things. I can prove to you that water freezes at 32 degrees, right? Because there's a, science, there's a method for that, right? Observable, measurable, repeatable. That's what science does. We can watch it happen over and over and over again. And okay, we can prove water freezes at 32 degrees. We can prove gravity is a real thing. But when you're talking about a historical event, you can't think about it in those terms. That's improper. What we do, what is the evidence that this happened? You go into a courtroom, the lawyer doesn't say, I can prove it to you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you the evidence and try and convince you that this thing happened. Our court system says, you know what, if you can find three eyewitnesses that give the same testimony, this is considered reliable eyewitness testimony. 500 people, at minimum, Paul says over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. I mean, imagine if you were being told something impossible. Right? Maybe two or three people tell you something 
You know it can't be true. Eh, it's a couple crazies, right? It reminds me of like, I hope I don't offend anybody with this. It reminds me of the History Channel, if you like believe in aliens. But it reminds me of the History Channel, right? You watch this stuff about alien abduction, and they all like look crazy, and you're just like, is there a normal person that's ever claiming to have ever been abducted by aliens? And I watch those, and, I, and it's entertaining, but it's not convincing. I don't walk away from like, well, those five dudes with like half their head shaved, like, they're the ones who said it must be true. But I tell you what, if 500 people went, came through that door right now, and said, hey, we just watched a bear walk across 160 with a top hat, a cane, smoking a pipe, waving at cars. 500 people? Yeah, okay. Sounds unbelievable, but 500 people all say the same thing? That's hard to deny that. No matter how impossible it sounds, 500 reliable witnesses come in and tell you the same story? I tell you what, it's, I can't think of anything that someone could tell me that 500 people all said, yep, we know it sounds crazy, but we all saw it, and I would just say, yeah, it probably didn't happen. Like, 500 people is a lot of people to all agree upon something. I think it's also important to recognize that the writings of Paul have survived. And that's important because if Paul was writing something that the, the, that the world at large said, that's crazy, that didn't happen, we all know it didn't happen, it wouldn't stand the test of time. So I remember vividly watching, you know, what happened on 9-11, right? We, we see a plane come in and hit this building, and there are crazy people who after that event said... There was no planes, it was all bombs, and they, they make up all of this stuff, right? And they write crazy things, and we don't believe them, right? Because we have seen it. Crazy writings, things that people say that are completely outside of reality, they don't survive. They don't stand the test of time. They're forgotten. They're gone. But the fact that Paul's writings have survived for thousands of years, and nobody refuted them. You see, if Paul was telling us a lie, that Christ was re resurrected... The world at large would have said, no, that guy is insane. He's seeing things. Disregard everything. And you know how I know that that's true? Because at the time, very short after, there were men in a group called the Gnostics, right? You probably have heard that word maybe somewhere along the way in your life. But how many of you have any of their writings on your shelf? Their writings, they're still sort of around, but they didn't survive because those guys were crazy. They wrote the Gospel of Thomas. This is, this is all you need to know about the Gnostics to recognize, wow, disregard everything they said. The last verse in the Gospel of Thomas says, women, if you want to be saved, you have to become men because only men can receive salvation. There you go. Delete. Like, we don't need to know anything else you have to say because that's insane. Right? What are you even talking about? That's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus says. And their writings do not survive the test of history because everybody recognized this is worthless. But when Paul tells us that Christ has been resurrected, the world sees it and they believe it. Not purely by faith, but there were hundreds, if not thousands of people who saw Christ. Let me give you this really like concise recounting of all the appearances of Christ that we have in the New Testament. He shows himself to Mary Magdalene by herself. 
Then to all the Marys, next to Simon Peter alone, afterwards to the two disciples journeying to Emmaus, to the ten apostles when the doors were shut, to all the disciples when Thomas was there with him, to Peter, John, and the others while fishing in Lake Tiberias, to the 500 brethren at once, to James, the Lord's brother, to the 11 disciples in Galilee, to all of the apostles and disciples at Olivet before his ascension, and lastly to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. There may have been more for we have no proof that all of his appearances are on record. At minimum, 500. Probably thousands of people saw him. We don't have to just accept this on faith. There is overwhelming evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection is real. So what should our response be? And that's what we see from Paul. Number one, humility, right? He says, I am the least of all, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and by this grace towards, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, so that it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. The salvation we have is from God, right? That's what salvation is. We recognize that we are undeserving of God's love, that we are undeserving of his grace and his mercy, and he gives it to us anyway. And then verse 11, I think this is key, really important. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. The resurrection is real. And we as a church, as individuals, are called to go out into the world and preach that. With fervor, unashamed, with boldness, we tell the people of the world that Christ is risen from the grave. He is alive and the tomb is empty. last thing I will say is this, this last section here, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now twice Paul talks about people who we would say are dead. He says they have fallen asleep. Now I don't think Paul is trying to cushion the blow. I don't think he is trying to avoid the word dead or dying because it makes people feel uncomfortable. If there's one thing Paul did not care about, it's making people feel uncomfortable, Right? <laughs> He just tells you the way it is. He's not trying to soften anything. He's trying to communicate something to us. I tell you what, you know, people talk about like uh, if you could go back in history and meet one person, of course, Jesus. But if I could get it twice, the second guy would be I would want to go and sit and listen to Charles Spurgeon preach. This is a little bit long, but this is his, this is part of a sermon that he preached on this, and it is un. Unbelievable. Listen to this. Listen to the beauty of the way that he writes and speaks. It's, it's unreal. The eyes of the sleeper ache no more with the glare of light or with the rush of tears. His ears are teased no more with the noise of strife or the murmur of suffering. His hands are no more weakened by the long protracted effort and painless, painful weariness. His feet are no more blistered with journeying to and fro along a rugged road. There is rest for aching heads and strained muscles and overtaxed nerves and loosened joints and pa panting lungs and heavy hearts in the sweet repose of sleep. On yonder couch, however hard, the laborer shakes off his toil, the merchant his care, the thinker his difficulties, and the sufferer his pains. Sleep make, makes each night a Sabbath for the day. 
Sleep shuts to the poor, the door of the soul and bids all intruders tarry for a while and uh, that the royal life within may enter into its summer garden of ease. From the sweat of his brow man is delivered by sleep and the thorns and thistles of the curse cease to tear at his flesh. So it is that the body while it sleeps in the tomb. Uh, so it is with the body while it sleeps in the tomb. The weary are at rest. The servant is as much at ease as his Lord. The body and all of its members find the tomb a couch of sufficient length and breadth. The coffin shut out all disturbance, labor, or effort. The toil-worn believer quietly sleeps. Oh, happy that they who, are die in, who die in the Lord. They rest from their labors and their works do follow them. We should not shun toil, for though it is in itself a curse, it is, when sanctified, a blessing. Yet toil for toil's sake we would not choose. And when God's work is done, we are glad to think that our work is also done. Paul uses the word on purpose. Because just like in this life, when we sleep and it renews us and it restores us, and it is temporary... It's the same in death. Paul is painting a picture for us. When we die and when we are buried, that is not the end. In the same way that Christ was resurrected, we will experience that same resurrection. Because not only does Paul say we fall asleep, but he says Christ is what? The first fruits. What does that word mean? He's the first one be harvested and eventually the rest of the harvest will come we are being sowed our dead body is a seed being put into the ground and christ is the first fruit and we will be reaped we there will be a sowing one day and we will come out of that grave with a resurrected body just as christ has done it wouldn't be possible if he didn't go before us though he goes first we come later. Our bodies will be resurrected and we will be in glory with Jesus forever. And just as death came into the world through one man, so the resurrection of the dead comes into the world through one man. And this is the warning, I think, of this passage. Everybody will be resurrected. It's not just the Christians. Every man, woman, and child, their body will come back. They will be resurrected, and everyone will stand before the Lord and give an account of their life. The fool will stand before God and say, look at all the things that I've done. Didn't you see how hard I worked? Didn't you see how much I gave to charity? Didn't you see the way that I treated my family with love and dignity and respect my whole life, and I gave up everything for my kids, and on and on and on and on? The wise man of faith will point to Jesus and say, Father God, there's nothing I have ever done to earn your love, but look at him. My righteousness is found in him. He is the one. He shields me. I am found in Christ and Christ is in me. And God will look at us and smile and say, well done, my faithful servant. Because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. So I ask you again, do you believe that? This morning, 
Is your plan, when you die, to stand before God and list off all of your accomplishments? That is the work of the fool. God is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to come. He's ready and willing, and he wants to forgive you. He's asking you to repent. The Bible gives us a promise that every man who believes in his heart that Christ is Lord and confesses with his mouth will be saved. If you're thinking about all of the good things you have done and that that's going to earn you a way into the kingdom of God, I'm here to tell you that they will not work. You're not good enough. None of us are. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Find your righteousness in the dead and resurrection of Jesus Christ and not in yourself and not in anything that you have ever done. The last thing that we see that's of great importance in this passage is that the last enemy that will be defeated is death. It will be a footstool for our Savior in heaven. Death will be defeated forever. Hear this from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you believe it? Have you bowed the knee to the creator of this universe and asked him for, for forgiveness? Have you confessed with your mouth that you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he has died and resurrected, and that he has defeated death and sin. God is ready and willing to forgive you, but you must repent. That is all that God requires of us. To bow down before him and confess him as Lord and ask forgiveness for our sins. He has defeated death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. The tomb is empty. Praise the Lord for Easter, right? That God has conquered all of the things that have held us down. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that you have done the work of salvation for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. We are so grateful that Jesus has come to earth and that he has died and that he was not held down by the tomb or by death, but that he has defeated both, that he is alive, that he is seated with you and we reap the benefits that we have been saved because of the good work of your son. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We read out of Isaiah 53 earlier. I just want to read a little bit from the beginning of Isaiah 55. It's very fitting 